0: Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 122
1: recorded on June 16th, 2021. Welcome to Crash Consistency Week. Good evening, Ryan. You're very familiar with crashing, so this is a great week for you. Indeed. And then uh, Jonathan and Peter are uh, AWOL, but Peter sent a substitute, uh, and that is Matthew Cohn, who's been on the show with us before. Hello, Matthew. Hey guys, how are you doing? We are doing just great here on a lovely Wednesday evening. It's not yet Friday. Always a bummer when it's not Friday, but uh, we're getting closer. Every every minute the passes of recording is one step closer to Friday. Indeed. Well, uh, it's it's been a while since you've been on. Uh, anything new and exciting in the world of uh, Matthew and Foghorn and what you're doing, and for all of your amazing customers over there? Um, nothing too
2: much. Moved down to New Jersey and uh, living the suburbia life nowadays.
1: Mm, lovely. Well, that's a uh, New Jersey is an interesting choice. I don't. I won't question your your logic on that. But uh, we'll we'll just move on to a topic that might be near and dear to your heart. If New Jersey uh, with Vagrant three <laughs> Uh So HashiCorp this week has released a blog post talking about Vagrant three I actually thought Vagrant was on a path to death. Uh, you know, it's been a while since it really got a lot of major feature updates. It's a little clunky these days. Uh, But, you know, for those of you who are really familiar with Vagrant, you may have a a strong love uh, for it with a large community of developers, operators, designers, and products that all rely on the capabilities of Vagrant. Um, I've used Vagrant many, many times. I know Brian's a big Vagrant user. I think Matthew even has used Vagrant a bit. Uh, Oh, for years. Yeah. It's just one of those things, you you know, when you start getting into – automation and CICD and, and DevOps practices is a great way to experiment locally you know, with VirtualBox or with other plugins to AWS or Azure or different things. So it's always been a nice way to just kind of test local development. Uh, but there's some exciting things with this move to Vagrant 3.0 that uh, they talk about in this transition. So first of all, they're going to start rewriting it into Go uh, from Ruby. So right now, it's a Ruby-based uh, product, which is part of its problem for being not very cross-portable. And so by moving it to Go while maintaining its Ruby-based features, uh, they're hoping to make it more compatible and much more capable in the future. Uh, so over the next year and the next couple of releases, the two, Vagrant 2.3 and 2.4 release uh, will release some non-breaking uh, changes that start enabling this Go transition. And Vagrant 3.0 will introduce a new method for configuration but retain the tooling for continued compatibility with Vagrant files, including detection of a Ruby Vagrant file versus a Go Vagrant file, and installation of compatibility helpers to minimize interruptions of user workflow, which you can basically translate as they're going to give you an upgrade command. <laughs> It's going to convert your Ruby thing to a non-Ruby thing uh, at some point in the future. Several new features, though, that I'm actually kind of excited about. So the first one they talk about is the new client server architecture, uh, which allow you to run Vagrant on a remote host and secure and run secure actions on the machine. Um, so you'll be able to install Vagrant on resource and sensitive machines and interact with it on a thin client, uh, which allow you to share one Vagrant environment among multiple team members, which is one of the big challenges of Vagrant today, all around doing multi-member editing. Uh, you will still be able to, of course, run Vagrant locally because, you know, why I deprecate that feature? That's a fantastic feature. Uh, and take advantage of some of the new security features all locally as well. So, this new shared capability is available to you as well as the local development. On the security side, uh, everything today runs as Vagrant user, uh, which is a process that requires acceptance from you to enable privileged actions, which can be pretty problematic from a CI CD pipeline, uh, unless you want to leverage something like a sudoers file. Uh, to define each Vagrant command uh, with escalated privileges. Uh, that causes all kinds of issues, especially for your security team, who doesn't like pseudo I'm sure. <laughs> and so, uh, that causes lots of issues. And then on Windows, of course, there is no pseudo because Windows doesn't understand that concept whatsoever, making it very difficult to leverage Vagrant for headless use cases. And so, on Vagrant 3, Uh, They're going to provide a new privileged service to execute known and trusted commands from Vagrant and its plugins without the need for a direct user interaction. Uh, This also enables finer control of trusted commands. And you'll be able to use controls to prevent automatic evaluation of Ruby-based Vagrant files and also start writing configuration in the HashiCorp configuration language, which if you're doing Terraform, you already know and love or hate. Not sure how that works for people. There's a new global config management, which is great. So now you can uh, reference your own local config of Vagrant. uh, But different users sometimes uh, don't have those configurations that you have. And so that would cause all kinds of problems in a CI-CD pipeline, unless you remember to move your global configs. That can all now be configured in the state of the Vagrant. And so now you get that ability to be cross-portable, which solves a lot of issues, as well as they say lays the foundation for a future web-based UI, error checking, and transaction-based changes, uh, and improves overall resilience of Vagrant and then fixes some long-pending issues with the Vagrant index file, which has grown too big and very fragile in some implementations. The plugin APIs uh, will continue to exist. Uh, They will be moved to the HashiCorp uh, model for Go plugins in the future. Uh, As long as you are writing a gRPC-compatible plugin, you will be able to use the new Go uh, implementation of that. They'll be providing you a bunch of new SDKs that make it easier than ever to write those things, as well as to port your uh, plugin to the newest versions of Vagrant. Uh, and much more cross compatibility, which is great. And then they also fix the uh, Ruby problem, which is that their Ruby is not your Ruby. And so if you're trying to do a lot of Ruby work, uh, you could run into all kinds of nasty Ruby version problems. Uh, so that'll now go away with Go, of course, coming into play, uh, which is great. And then they're also taking advantage of the wealth of HashiCorp tools to make it all easier out of the box. Uh, you know, Hashi then goes on to tell us that they do acknowledge that uh, replatforming is hard. And for those of you who have ever done it, you all know that. Uh, And so there are two steps to this. Step one will be porting the core to Vagrant, which will be coming in the 2.3 release, uh, which will be Go is kind of optional to you. You don't have to use it, you can choose to use it. And then step two will be working on the built-in plugins, which will come in version 2.4 and will feature the new Go implementation of Vagrant as the primary executable, including the new migration command. And then Vagrant 3 will be completely uh, Vagrant compatible with Go. So there you go. So this is about a probably year to 18 months transition, uh, which
0: we're looking forward to seeing them complete. This is very surprising. Uh, you know, I, I was convinced that Vagrant was just going to sort of wither on the vine. It's been stepped on in a lot of different areas. Even you know, if you think about you know, being able to spin up VMs as easily as you can on any of the cloud providers, sort of gets into that space. And then you add in Docker containerized development. You know, I haven't really used Vagrant in many many years because of that because I have other options. But then. You look at this and they're, it's, it's really a new service by using the same name built upon the same thing. So that's, you know, they're hosting a lot of things centrally. They're allowing sort of this, you know, your, your vagrant configurations to be used by many, many people by sort of abstracting that away from local development, which is sort of interesting. It might be part of a larger play by HashiCorp.
2: Yeah. I mean, I feel like the last time I really used vagrant consistently was like two, two and a half years ago when I really started getting into Docker. Um, And now it's just like, okay, I just, you know, spin up a new Docker container, do what I need to do and kind of go from there and iterate over it. Even if I'm developing something like a user data script for an Amazon EC2 instance, I'll just do it in Docker versus, you know, spinning a vagrant in VirtualBox and all that overhead. So I'm a little bit surprised there you know, bring it back to life, but I'm not surprised at all that they're bringing it to go and kind of bringing, trying to really integrate it in because Vagrant was a little bit of the redhead stepchild where every other tool by HashiCorp was in Terraform or sorry, was in Go and this one was in Ruby. So it kind of is nice that they're going to integrate it in now with the rest of them. And I'm curious to see, you know, what their end goal is because I feel like they have a three to four year project now or, Of where they want to see all this go that, you know, they're obviously not announcing yet, but there's some sort of larger service, you know, like Terraform Cloud or anything like that, that I'm sure they're going to try to build and implement with this. Yep.
0: I mean, Vagrant isn't even mentioned on their top page now. I mean, there's still the Vagrant Up page that's always been there, but I found it very interesting when looking at the products page on HashiCorp.com that there's no mention of HashiCorp or Vagrant. So it's like Redhead Stepchild is exactly right. Yeah, I, I, I you know, like I said I think it it was mostly dead.
1: The now it's coming back, and you know your qu- your question is it get tied into Nomad in some way? Does it get tied into Terraform in the future? To potentially be part of how you build um, you know initiations of servers. I, there's a lot of power that it, it provided to you. Especially if you're doing gold images with something, uh, this was definitely a way people have done that in the past. Until like the gold image AMI builder came from Amazon and some of the other tools. Um, so yeah, it is interesting that they are investing this level because you're, you're right; it is a multi-year project at minimum. Uh, and where it goes from here is, is still TBC. But yeah, you're right; it may be the beginning of a foundational play to some other future service that Hashi hasn't quite announced yet. So we'll see see how the tea leaves start to uh, come together on this one. Well, moving on to AWS, uh, first up, we have a quick story. They have announced they are going to be opening a new region in Tel Aviv, Israel, uh, which will open the first half of 2023 with three availability zones. Uh, and so you know, they, Amazon clearly has figured out that they were behind on the building the data center thing. Because you know we talked about Oracle and Azure and GCP building all these new regions. And Amazon was kind of just silently there. Like, yeah, we've announced a few, Jakarta and a couple others, but ultimately hadn't done a lot. And now, all of a sudden, they're just, you know, this is like the third of these we've talked about in the last couple of months. I think they've announced a new region that's coming. And we talked about last week when they announced the, I think it was the new Japanese region uh, or maybe the new Korea one. Uh, You know, they they already have like 12 regions in progress at this point, something like that. So it's just, uh, you know, lots of growth, lots of capital investment to be competitive in the cloud space these days, no matter who you are.
2: I don't know if any of you have ever been to Israel. It's a fairly small country because I have family that lives there. So I've been over a few times and I'll probably actually be going in uh, the next month to go visit some grandparents. But, you know, I'm kind of curious where they're going to be placing three availability zones with distinct power, you know, and all these different things all in that fairly small country. So you never will actually know the answer to this, but I would love to see actually where they place their data centers. You know, within the region, because it's a fairly small country, like six to eight hours top to bottom and two hours, maybe a little bit more, you know, east to west. So, you know, compared to like Oregon or, you know, any of the other ones that span multiple states or, you know, much larger areas, this is a fairly small area that they're building all these in.
0: Uh, I mean, even comparatively to like Japan or another sort of small country, you know, like it is crazy to me that they can have that separation. And I wonder, you know, maybe it speaks to the advancement of technology. You know, you can you can roll up a box truck somewhere. And as long as you have some sort of ability to generate isolated power and cooling and network, you can have an AZ. It's pretty, pretty amazing.
1: I was I was curious what the insurance premiums on a building in Israel like this would be. You know, we had, that, we had that bomber who pled guilty last week, uh, you know, about bombing the AWS facility in Virginia. And, uh, you know, Israel and Palestine are not in good place right now. And they're about to go through a major government uh, change out with Netanyahu leaving uh, and the new government forming. So it's going to be interesting times in Israel for the next couple of years. Uh, you know, just, it'll be interesting to see where they're at and by the time we get to 2023 uh, and, and what that looks like. I wonder if Snowmobile was kind of the basis for another region. Just, you know. <laughs> Sent us a few
2: snowmobiles over there and called it a day.
1: I mean, we're convinced that Oracle's data centers are just you know people's garages, mm-hmm. you know, executives' home, you know, second homes and third homes. You know, where they just send a, they say, hey, you gotta get that garage up or just put a, a small data center in it. <laughs> I think they're just gonna move them around. I agree. Yeah, get the uh, get the Blue Origin you know internet service going, and then they mm-hmm. just connect to that, and all's yeah. good. Yeah, a little solar panel on the roof, good, done, yeah, good. Cool it with just open the window, you know, while you're driving yeah. on the freeway. Sure, yeah, I'm sure that'll go well for servers. They love to, you know, they love to be moved regularly in
0: chicken. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. So if someone, you know, increases the compute, you just have to drive faster for increased cooling. Indeed. There is no flaw in this plan.
1: None. None whatsoever. <laughs> well, you know, other plans that are better. Proton, <laughs> which we talked about recently on the show, uh, is now generally available. Uh, so Proton, of course, is their fully managed app delivery service for containers and serverless applications. Uh, and platform engineers can build complex architectures and offer them to developers in simple consumable units. Uh, there's a quote here from Deepak Singh, AWS VP of Compute Services. Uh, customers have told us that they, while they love the operational benefits that container and serverless applications provide, it is incredibly challenging to scale these architectures across their organizations because of the many manual tasks involved in deploying apps that use microservices. Proton brings together customers' infrastructure as code, CICD pipeline, and observability into a single interface so developers can quickly go from code in a repo to a production application. Uh, since this launch, we've covered several stories, including multi-account support, customer managed environments, adding and removing instances from existing services, uh, and all kinds of uh, other features like Jinja templates, et cetera. Uh, and so, of course, you know they also published a public roadmap, as all of Deepak Singh's organizations seem to have a public roadmap. He's a big believer in that. Uh, and so I took a peek at some of the things that are coming up, and they're researching uh, supporting EKS. So this won't be just an ECS service, which I think is interesting, uh, integrating it into CloudWatch as well as template access management. So instead of having just you know, a platform team that has access to all the templates, you could be able to do uh, you know scope that down to just certain tags, or certain groups. And then they said they're working on Git management of templates. So it'll all be tied up into Git and GitHub Actions, as well as self-service CICD integration and Terraform integrations coming soon, as well as uh, they are currently in development on private link support, which all services seem to be getting private link support these days, which is a must-have for many, many companies, I think, in the regulated space.
0: Now these are all super cool improvements and this is this is sort of the dream in a sense. Like I'm I'm very skeptical and I haven't run an application on top of it. Uh, you know, previous solutions like, you know, Beanstalk and Lightsail, you know, all come with some serious trade-offs for that management. So Proton is, you know, seems to be the right middle of the road, which I really like. And so I'm excited to try it. And they're they they're focusing on the right features for me when, when you think about running something. For real, not just a dev environment, you know, having the resiliency of multi-accounts and being able to sort of templatize and scale out the deployments is a really big addition to this. So it's great.
2: Yeah, I think that this is going to be a great service. I mean, I uh, really, how do I put this nicely, despise Elastic Beanstalk because, you know, (laughs) I feel like every time I use it or a customer uses it, we end up like hitting some edge case that you can't do or you're baking AMI, which you know, or you're writing custom, you know, extensions to EB extensions to Beanstalk, you know. So I always feel like, you know, it's not necessarily the, the best solution out there. Um, but this really does feel like they're trying to take that last bit of Beanstalk where they finally released Docker support onto it, I'd probably say a couple of years ago now, and, you know, actually just make a new service from the ground up with it. Um, and like Ryan said, a lot of the features they're adding are going to be key, you know, Most of my day job is, you know, Terraform. I love me some GitHub Actions. You know, they really are powerful and are able to solve a lot of problems with very little overhead. And even if you do use your, I think it's like 3,000 minutes a month, like it's not an expensive service if you're not running your own runners. So getting some of those things in there, I think early on will really get people to start to use it and figure out what else people, you know, what else people need in order to make the service useful. And hopefully those all go into their researching slash working on it columns.
0: And Justin's music. Awkward.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Amazon uh, EC2 now allows you to create crash consistent AMIs from instances with multiple EVS volumes without rebooting your instances. Uh, So AMI is created will retain data from all completed IO ops for each volume attached to the instance. And this ensures that you can launch an instance from the AMI and return to the exact state prior to the creation of the image, which might be important for things like DR, you know, for example, uh, to do this previously, you had to manually pause I.O. before creating an AMI image, or had to shut down the instance before creating the AMI or reboot the instance during AMI creation, uh, which is always kind of a bummer. And so this is nice. Uh, finally, one of the last, you know, again, easy to wish list items that I've had on my list for a long time <laughs> is finally here. Very long time. Even though like
2: you, this is now a feature, I've been doing this for instances for one customer for six, seven years now, where they take a snapshot of their... AMIs, or running these two instances, you know, daily and re- de- replicate them to their DR region. And I've never really had a major problem. Now, their volumes aren't rated or anything along those lines, but, like, they're running databases and mongos and stuff like that, and I've never really had a problem with it. So even though I always have told them and I tell all my customers, you know, this could become a problem, so you should really be safe, like, this i I've something I've never really run across of, like... Taking an AMI of a server and having issues. I don't know if you guys have.
1: It's one of those scenarios that it could bite you, and for most of the time, it won't bite you. And then you know, but they can never guarantee it. I think this is where they're just saying now we can guarantee this will happen properly. Um, there's also weird things like you are doing a raid on top of EBS, which you know Amazon still discourages heavily, <laughs> uh, but you know some people still insist on doing it to get higher I/O throughputs. Um, you know, there was a lot of challenges. Of how do you you know how do you do the snapshot across all those drives at the same time? You go know, because microseconds matter in, in a RAID five array and those type of things. And so th- there's a lot of challenges with those type of things. So this is kind of starting to fix some of those problems. Uh, you know, but you know still things like MongoDB you mentioned, they still have to flush that data out of memory to disk because if it doesn't get flushed, you're hosed. Because <laughs> and that's that's not a Amazon EC2 problem. That's a Mongo problem.
0: Windows workloads I think are really sensitive to this as well, right? So yes, they they, they tend to have issues. I mean the real reason I want this is for like security instance and forensic analysis, right? So this has always been a nightmare of try- trying to do, you know, if you if you think you detected a breach or or you want to investigate a little further, you know, having the ability to sort of create this as a an artifact that you can then ship off to another account or another environment is awesome. So rebooting sort of ruins a lot of that. And you've had to do that in the past for this kind of action. So this is, this is a good ad. It's a, you know, like 40 years too late, but you know, okay.
2: Just, this still doesn't give you the memory snapshot, which is really the missing piece for the forensics aspect of It's like, how do I take a running server, take an AMI of it, launch it somewhere else and get that initial running state of it. So I can do that forensics of it, but you know, it shows they're slowly getting there and maybe, in the
1: next 40 years, they'll add that feature. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've been in, you know, this year has been the year of, you know, really idiosynchronous uh, EC2 things that we thought we would never get, right? Like the ability to actually connect to a running console uh, of a server and, you know, other things that we talked about here on the show. So, you know, it's possible this is the year we're going to get it finally. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It just, you know, I don't know. You know, I don't know. There's no roadmap that I can go look at for EC2.
2: Sounds like I'll have to tell Peter to add that to his uh, uh, reinvent what do you guys call it? Uh, prediction show
1: uh, draft? Prediction show yeah. draft? Yeah, whatever. Something, <laughs> something some segment we normally run. <laughs> yes, the, <laughs> the reinvent draft is what I. I'm thinking of. You mean the thing I lose every year? That thing? Yeah, that thing. That one. Nah, yeah. okay. Or you know, we always lose when we it's do. It's the we, thing uh, you all lose. Yeah, I mean, we we, we do okay sometimes. <laughs> we struggled with Microsoft events, which is why we just don't do it for Microsoft events anymore. Because it's but Google and and yeah. AWS, we're we're good. We got those as long as we don't do summits. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe not, re- and maybe not reinforce, we'll see. Well, Amazon is announcing per-second billing uh, for EC2 Windows Server and SQL Server instances effective as of January 11th. Uh, so if you're only running server Windows servers for less than 60 seconds, uh, you get a discount. Uh, but I don't know any Windows box that starts up within 60 seconds. So I don't know who this person is, but you know, great for you. <laughs> Uh, pay, customers will only pay for Windows Server and SQL Server instances that are launched in an on-demand, reserved, and spot form running on EC2 in one-second increments with a minimum of one-minute duration. Uh, customers with use cases that require a large number of instances running for irregular periods of time, such as dev test, data processing, analytics, batch processing, image rendering, and gaming applications have benefited from per-second billing for Amazon, Linux, and Ubuntu forever. And so now they're happy to bring it to you in Windows and SQL Server. Uh, applies to existing and new instances and applies to all regions. Uh, and this does not affect the list prices and spot market prices. They still remain on a per
0: hour basis. Uh,
1: but your bill is still calculated down
0: to the second. So those users that are using, you know, workloads for data processing, analytics, batch processing, shouldn't just use a smaller, more nimble <laughs> OS oh, there. OK, Windows. All right. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm shocked. I was pretty happy when it came down from an hour to a minute because that one made a lot of sense to me. And, you know, if you had something spinning for small period of time, but yeah, I don't know if I've ever run a Linux or a Windows workload for less than a minute. Yeah, It's hard.
2: I mean, it takes it five minutes to boot uh-huh. up, so, you know, there's that. I'm more surprised they got Microsoft licensing to actually let them do it
1: down to the per second. <laughs> yeah, I was mostly talking about that part, too. Uh You know, and the thing about SQL Server, you, you could have done this with SQL Server for a while, because SQL Server can run on top of Linux these days, so, you know, you, you actually sort of already had it. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, it's, it is an interesting announcement. I yeah, these these per second billing changes they've been doing, you know, yes, they give you, you know, small fractions of pennies back to your business if you're rapidly spinning things up and down this quickly. But I don't know that many workloads that are that dynamic. Maybe in the, the MLAI space, but then you're running your MLAI on top of Windows. On Windows? <laughs> yeah. With SQL Server? Like actually, oh, yeah. I'm not really sure of the use case, but I'm sure uh, there is one. It just you know, someone has that out there in the world mm-hmm. that wants to share, I'd love to hear about it.
0: I mean it's a nice It's a nice little notch in the belt, for sure. Like, it's one of those things where, you know, they're not billing you for any more than you use, which is always nice. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't know that I was crying about that extra 45 seconds my instance was billed for. Uh, to get to the minute level, no, because I've already deployed a 4XL because it needs to. That's what it needs to run in the first place on a Windows workload. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> uh, but you know, going back to uh, features that we have desperately wished for for a long time, this is another one of those. With AWS removing the NAT gateway's dependence on Internet Gateway for private communications, uh, this has been a weird, weird annoyance for a while. Uh, so in the past, uh, Internet Gateway is required to provide internet access to the NAT gateway. Uh, and however, some customers just use their net gateway to get to a transit gateway or a virtual private gateway to a VPN to your on-premise to commute privately with other VPCs or on-premise environments. And thus, you had to do that with Internet Gateway. Now you don't, which is fantastic. So now I don't have to have that overhead of paying for the Internet Gateway that I don't really want that is a security problem if I don't want this data accessed from, you know, be able to access the Internet anyway, any
0: way, especially considering they just still don't have it filtering at the Internet Gateway. Yeah, no, I don't know how many times I've had to explain why there's uh, an Internet Gateway in a in an account that shouldn't have any internet access. Like it just, it's just awkward. So I'm really glad to see this gone. uh, And, you know, and, and the billing for it as well.
2: Yeah. The amount of auditors and, you know, uh, audits I've looked at that, you know, other third parties have done and given to our customers. And I have to explain to my customer, Hey, we have the internet gateway because the NAT gateway requires it. and have to have this whole long convoluted conversation telling them why the audit that they were just paid a lot of money for is mis- you know is not actually giving them the information they need because this is a requirement of AWS. You know is absurd. So I'm very happy to never have that conversation again, or at least be able to tell them, hey, this conversation that we're about to have can be mitigated if we just press the delete button on
1: this thing. It didn't really talk about how to do that particular task right so it didn't say how to exi- how to modify an existing one so I hope it's just as simple as delete it uh, but I haven't tested it yet cause I yeah I don't want to break my VPC so <laughs> but uh, when I one have, way to when find I, out uh, yeah when I when I have some time I'll sort of have a test VPC and I'll play with this but Again, I'm worried that's not going to be an adequate test because it's new versus a legacy one. So this, yeah. there may be some heavy lifting here. Be careful. Proceed with caution.
0: I got a couple of production workloads. I'll test this in. Don't worry. No worries. Perfect. Let us
1: know. <laughs> Only the best people test in prod. <laughs> Only the best.
0: I mean, you I mean, you
1: have more dev accounts than I do that you could probably test in. <laughs> so <laughs> CloudPod runs in prod and dev in the same account. <laughs> mm. So on the same server. So you know it's just, it's yeah. You know, there's no <laughs> no, good, no good path there for us whatsoever. For listeners of the CloudPod, you know that I have no love for Microsoft Active Directory, which is why I'm excited to tell you about the leading cloud directory platform, JumpCloud. JumpCloud makes it easy to solve today's IT challenges by unifying device and user management through a single pane of glass, enabling you to securely manage your users and devices and perform common tasks like onboarding and offboarding remote workers. With JumpCloud, you no longer need to implement an on-premise Active Directory infrastructure or additional tooling to scope a user's access. And you can ensure that the user is coming from trusted devices and networks. Enabling JumpCloud zero-trust solutions improves the security and compliance of your network, ensuring users have access only to the services they need when they need them. To start your organization's move to a modern, secure hybrid work model, try JumpCloud for free today at cloud.jumpcloud.com slash the cloud pod. That's cloud.jumpcloud.com slash the cloud pod. All right, moving on to GCP land. Uh, Ubuntu Pro is landing on Google Cloud. Uh, For those of you who know what Ubuntu Pro Pro are, you're probably very, very happy. (laughs) For the rest of us, I'm about to educate you on what Ubuntu Pro is. Uh, This is the general availability of Ubuntu Pro images on Google Cloud, providing customers with an improved Ubuntu experience, expanded security coverage, and integration with critical Google Cloud features via their partnership with Canonical, making it even easier for customers that have fully embraced open source to ensure security and compliance for their most mission-critical and enterprise workloads. Yes, embrace open source by buying an enterprise product. That makes perfect sense. (laughs) Some of the features you get with Ubuntu Pro, uh, you get a 10-year lifetime of security updates, uh, so you don't have to upgrade to those pesky... Your quarterly updates of Ubuntu. Uh, you get a FIPS and CC-EAL2 certification, which will meet requirements for FedRAMP, HIPAA, ISO, and PCI, all things I've done with the open-source version of Ubuntu, so I'm not sure why I need this one. Uh, an open-source uh, security coverage including uh, that covers Mongo, Kafka, Redis, Nginx, and Postgres, uh, so basically built-in security tunings for those things. And then they have multiple versions available to you, the 16.04, 18.04, and 20.04. Uh, I did wonder if the 16.04 only gets you six years of uh, maintenance (laughs) (laughs) Uh, or does 10 apply to all three of these versions Uh, you do get kernel live patching uh, which kernel patches are delivered immediately without having to reboot your vm which is a nice feature although there's ways to get that without you know if you recompile your kernel before you get there you can make this work uh, and then optional CIS and DISA STIG profiles for server hardening, as well as cloud-based pricing, uh, which doesn't require a contract, and is licensed based on the memory and CPU of your VM. And so for an example here, if you had a 64-gigabyte box with a 16-V CPU, uh, the
0: license, just the license, would cost you 90 dollars 48 per month. I was I was looking at the numbers originally before I realized that it was just the license, and I was like, that's a screaming deal. That's awesome. But yeah, no. I you know today i learned that there is an enterprise version of ubuntu which i did not know
2: the, this to me like ubuntu pro kind of feels like the equivalent of red hat is centos to like you get maybe you get you get that checkbox that says you get support you know that someone in your company demands that you have but i don't see that much more what it's getting you you know the longer term is useful if your application team never wants to update from all their, you know, Ubuntu 16 or 18 boxes, you know, so that gives you those 10 years of support, but either way, you're probably going to need some new package or you're going to have some vulnerability in some app that's only on, you know, Apache or Nginx or something that you're going to need to upgrade either way on. So,
0: yeah. And I'm, you know, there's, that's just sort of stipulating there'll be no more feature development or no, you know, like it is a weird, it's a weird move to, to like, oh, we want this to be. Guaranteed for 10 years, and we never want to touch it. This was sort of strange.
1: I mean, not upgrading your Ubuntu is, you know, yes, you're getting security patches, which is great, but like there's so many other opportunities and advancements you get in the newer versions of Ubuntu. You know, that's what innovation is. (laughs) And so maybe you want those things, maybe better memory handling, better CPU uh, time splicing, all kinds of different things. So, you know, you're just just kicking the can down the road to an eventuality where you now have a heavier lift to get to the latest version of Ubuntu. not sure I'm a huge fan of it
0: and it just feels like it's a way to bill for for meeting some uh requirement or certification right like it's i would say the vast majority of workloads you do not need you know support at this level um i don't know what advantage you're getting by paying for it except for some of these certifications um and so like it's which i feel is a little dirty like if you need to have fedramp you know, certification in order to, to run your business, you have to pay for this Ubuntu Pro to accomplish it. That's a little, eh, feels like a gouge. But again, I
1: don't I don't necessarily know that's true. I mean, maybe it eases some of your hardening requirements so you don't have to figure that on your own. But I mean, the CIS publishes all their hardening guidelines, and even templates are available on GitHub <laughs> to help you get there. So yeah, I, I don't know. But if this is for you and you have to have that support contract, that sweet, sweet support contract over Ubuntu, you know it's there. Take advantage of it. Pay $19.48. And it, it does scale. Yeah, The more CPUs you have, the more you pay. And the more memory you have is a flat rate. So that's nice. So you're not paying for the memory penalty, but you are paying for the CPUs. So to keep that in mind with this offering.
2: So is this only available on Google Cloud or is it now just on Google Cloud and you could already do it on other?
1: Vendors? Uh, I don't know. You know, there's. I believe there are Ubuntu Pro AMIs available to you in Amazon uh, through, you know, if you have a Marketplace contract with Ubuntu. This is just integrated natively into the consoles. This is one of those great things where you can accidentally pick this Ubuntu image and then pay $19.48 per month without realizing you did this mistake. Uh, so that's kind of where you're at. You, you, know, you get the the oops bill versus the intentional bill of like going through Marketplace.
0: I'm a professional.
1: I'm a pro. Mm-hmm. So, I buy my iPhone Pro. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, this, uh, so, you know, one of the things about Google Blog, if you ever pay attention to it, is they have a lot of customer case studies and customer guest posts. And so uh, we typically don't cover them here uh, because they're very typically a sales pitch, a little bit, or, you know, a hey, come by. Look at what an amazing thing my team did. My team is awesome. And we use Google to do it. And so we're on the blog telling you all about our amazing thing we did that has nothing to do with your business. Uh, but this was an interesting one because it is a customer who's using Anthos on AWS uh, and goes through the, some of the experience. And so this is Plaid. Uh, uh, the, you know, the blog post says Plaid is a company that maximizes the value of people through data, and they are developing a range of products that focus on improving customer experience. So when I go to the Plaid website, uh, it's mostly fintech, so I'm a little confused by that, but uh, it's fine. Uh, but their core product is a customer experience platform called Carte, and that they can analyze behavior and emotions of website visitors and app users, enabling businesses to deliver relevant communications real time. Which does not sound like a fintech company. So again, maybe that is a different company. I just I can't figure that out. And of course, they didn't link to their website in the guest post blog post, which is a little weird. So I don't know. But anyways, back to the back to the thing here. Uh, so as many companies on their journey of SaaS and software. As a service, all these things, they learned that uh, you know they wanted to basically add additional compute capacity in different regions to get better throughput. And so they looked for another solution uh, in addition to AWS, which they already on, and chose Google, uh, which is great. And they were running everything on compute instances, you know, at all as old as time. <laughs> uh, and then basically realized that containerization would solve all their problems. And so then they chose GKE for all their containerization. And so then, you know, they were wanting to go to GKE on Google, on AWS as well or some type of Kubernetes thing, and we're not, of course, happy with EKS because back when Anthos was launched, EKS was still just garbage. Uh, And so, you know, Anthos was announced, and so they got the advantage of uh, being able to then use uh, Anthos in a big way, and so they did. Uh, And so they now run their clusters, uh, mostly are based on Google products like Cloud Big Table and BigQuery, but, you know, for their compute usage, they're doing that on GKE, and now they're running Anthos clusters in AWS uh, to run this as well. Uh, They did consider, you know, Looking at moving everything, we decided that they were getting the best performance and cost benefit from running on two clouds, uh, which, you know, your experience will vary on that. And they do say that as well, uh, that, you know, you need to really understand your multi-cloud strategy before you go down this path. But for them, it made a lot of sense. And so that's uh, pretty interesting. Uh, so this is a good, a good uh, blog post. They do give you some tips if you're going down this path. Uh yeah, but they didn't give you a lot of tips, which is what the argument of the article was supposed to be. Uh, but in general, it takes a thoughtful approach to multi-cloud. And for Plaid, they said it worked great, but for others, it may not be the right fit, and you should consider whether multi-cloud is right for you and your customers. So yeah, that's their big tip of advice for multi-cloud.
0: So I, uh, you know, I need to evaluate, you know, my costs from the company who has already spent bazillions of dollars on Anthos, and then is going to run this on Amazon. I, I okay, I, I'm a little. Little skeptical, I guess I would say that uh, this is a cost neutral move. And, you know, I'd, I'd be curious and see what the, the real advantage of running those workloads on Amazon really was. Um, and if there is that much advantage, if it, if it is required to be on Amazon, if there's enough value in running it via Anthos rather than just running it natively in that cloud.
2: Yeah, I wonder if they had some sort of, you know, EDP pricing with Amazon or they were able to negotiate it in order to get the better compute pricing there, use Anthos and the other one just to manage everything. But even then, just the overhead of managing, you know, they are a fintech company at heart, at least is my understanding. So managing the overhead of, you know, setting up all the compliance and the regulations and the auditing and the notifications and all that good stuff that, you know, fintech companies have to deal with, you know, on two clouds and maintain and update and all that stuff, that overhead also isn't really included in this, which is really why I'm like, okay, is it really cost
0: effective or are you just saying it because, you know, you were able to do it? Yeah, it is sort of a... People don't normally factor in that level of cost of management. I'm guessing that no one has access to anything in either one of these environments. (laughs) That's the only way that it makes any sense to to evidence this is just be like, nope, nothing. Submit your work to the pipeline, and Anthos takes it from there. So uh, I did a real-time follow-up here. I did
1: go <laughs> Google for Plaid Carte, and I found that they are a Japanese company that has the name Plaid. So they are a Japanese SaaS company, so I correct that. It is not the Plaid of the financial services world. But mm. of course, that was not clarified in the blog post, so I, I say shenanigans on Google. Uh, for kind of misleading because they make it imply that it's other Plaid, which, you know, it isn't. And then, you know, other fun follow-up here, if you look at the website for Plaid, which I posted into our Slack channel, uh, it has this kind of, like, weird uh, hexagonal logo, which then if you look at the logo of Plaid.com, which is the fintech company, they're very similar. (laughs) Like, there's a lot of brain confusion going on here uh, that would not stand in the United States with trademarks, I don't think. But, uh, yeah. I don't fault them. I just, you know, Google should be a little more clear and, like, again, giving a blog post a link to the company so I know where to find them. Yeah. But anyways, good, good to hear. You know, people are using Anthos and they're using it in production and they seem to be happy with it, which you know, we mm-hmm. was kind of our question. So always good to yeah. see those type of blog posts. Oh, it's only ten grand mm-hmm. a month. Start starting at ten grand a month. Mm-hmm. You know. Oh, sorry. I forgot mm-hmm. that caveat. Starting at ten grand a, 10 a month. Grand a month. Yeah. That's just That good that. Oh, that that gets you in the building, Matthew. It's uh, it's after that. That's where you get the real bills come. So it's you know I got into the party, I got my private VIP booth, and I was like, this isn't too expensive. And then I saw the bottle prices. <laughs> Things got real <laughs> expensive real quickly
0: <laughs> at the club.
2: <laughs> Maybe I'll uh, spin this up in my uh, Foghorn GCP account and see if uh, see how fast Peter yells at me. Pretty quick, I, I guess.
1: All right. Well, our next story is uh, multi-project cloud monitoring is now being made easier by Google, uh, but it's not getting made easier by naming. So I will try to get through this without (laughs) confusing all of us because I had to struggle through a little bit. So uh, this is a new model for multi-project monitoring. Again, a project in Google world is like an Amazon account, uh, which replaces the concept of workspaces. Uh, Workspaces are just parts of a project. Uh, This overhaul is geared toward maximizing the flexibility you have to manage your monitoring environment by introducing metric scopes. And so now you can associate your Google Hub projects with multiple metric scopes. And like WorkSpaces, metric scopes will still be used to store all of the configuration content for dashboards, alerting policies, uptime checks, notification channels, and group definitions. But unlike WorkSpaces, there's no limit to the number of metric scopes you can associate to a project. So now, with unlimited possibilities, you can unlock a variety of options, like more granular permissions to mission-focused configurations, or you can create an org-wide metric scope with monitoring configurations focused on infrastructure health. Uh, and this metric scope can handle up to 375 projects, uh, up from 100. New projects automatically start working in cloud monitoring throughout the previous 60-second workspace creation process. And if you want to monitor more than one project, simply add it to your metric scope. Uh, so you know this is a fantastic feature to get cross-cloud, cross-project monitoring, why they had to muddy it up with all this workspace metric scope mumbo-jumbo, I don't understand. But that's a very classic Google
0: move. I'm going to need a whiteboard and six colored mic- markers to understand what you just said, and lots of lots of circles.
2: Yeah, I'm lost. I'm not even going <laughs> to lie. The amount of metric scopes and projects and everything else in there is just a little confusing. I mean, it's,
1: it's basically, I can create a dashboard, which is what I think they you a know, metric scope basically is, that has all my alerting definitions and my alert thresholds, and then I can point that at multiple projects to then get that data. Uh, But why it wasn't just said the way I said it to you, I don't know.
2: If they would have said that, I would have understood it. I would have said, wow, that's a great feature. And I need it now, but because I have no understanding of what they said, I was like, okay, great. So is a metric
1: scope a dimension of the project? No, no, no. Metric scope is a replacement for the workspace, which just is a container that holds your dashboards, (laughs) your metrics, and your alerting mechanism. I said it. I already said it once. Come on, Ryan. <laughs> Come on. Metric scopes will be used to store all the configuration content for dashboards, alerting policies, uptime checks, and notification channels, and group definitions. I mean, what could be what could you be lost on? I, I'm confused. Right, and you even have it in writing. Yeah. Come on,
2: why is this so unclear it's to it's you? Unlike it's
1: workspaces, you can attach multiple projects. Like that's the thing. Like you got to know that. But you know, if you had a workspace and then you're like, why can't I attach to multiple projects? Because you're not using a metric scope. Like you should just figure this out, Ryan. Come Duh. on. And now you can do 375
2: projects. Come on, why don't you have that many we projects? You only have
1: 275 you know, Amazon accounts that you manage on a day-to-day basis. Why can't you get around 375 projects? I just only need one. Just throw everything in one project, it'd be fine. I can see no yeah, problems can go with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The zero-trust access model doesn't work so well with one project. It's the opposite of zero-trust. It's all-trust. All-trust, yeah. All-trust all, all, trust all, all the doors. time. Everyone mm-hmm. gets adverts. That, pro- that should have been our show title. All-trust all the time. Right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on to things I do understand, which is uh, subsea cables. Well, I sort of understand them. Uh, Google is announcing the new Fermina, an open subsea cable being built by Google that will run from the east coast of the United States to Las Toninas, Argentina, with additional landings in Praia Grande, Brazil, Punta del Este, and Uruguay. Uh, Fermina will be the longest cable in the world, capable of running entirely from a single power source at the one end of the cable if its other power sources become temporarily unavailable, which may be something here is important in South America where governments are unstable. Uh, The new cable will have 12 fiber pairs, and the cable will carry traffic quickly and securely between North and South America, giving users fast, low-latency access to Google products and GCP. Uh, And then they go on to talk about how they got the single-ended power source capability, uh, which are important for reliability, a key priority for Google's network. Uh, With the submarine cables, data travels as pulses of light inside the cables uh, of optical fibers, and that light signal is amplified every 100 kilometers with a high-voltage electrical current supplied at landing stations in each country. While shorter cables can enjoy the higher availability of power feeding from a single end, longer cables with large fiber pair counts make this harder to do. Fermina has broken the barrier. By achieving this record-breaking, highly resilient design, it is accomplished by supplying this cable with a voltage that's 20% higher than previous systems. So don't touch that cable, Timmy, if it washes <laughs> up on shore.
0: Yeah, this is, you know, I, I'm totally understanding, like, all of our problems of trying to route internet traffic through Mexico and Central America, and and what a... Big flex by Google to be like, you know what? We'll just run a cable. Ugh. I mean, that's
1: why Google's network is very superior to others because they've invested in it in the way that they have. It just—it's impressive, and the amount of money they spend on it every year is a lot. And, you know, this is like the fifth or sixth major subsea cable they've announced in the last, you know, twelve months.
0: Yeah, they're not messing around. That's for sure. And we—we we did a—that sort of answers the question we asked in a previous show of like how how do they actually, you know amplify the light over that long and so that is it's sort of cool that they're answering that as well nice uh, maybe they, they listened to our show and
1: saw the question and said we can answer them in the next blog post you know maybe if that's true that's awesome I don't think that, it's true but I, I, I don't mean, think so either it but might, it, uh, in my head it is I'm yeah. just going to keep I'm gonna keep, it, keep the I'm dream keep alive mm-hmm. our listeners can share that rumor like yes yeah, the, you know, the cloud <laughs> asked the question and the cloud the Google yeah. people answered it mm-hmm. subtly, 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 subtly yeah subtly, uh, wait,
0: well wait, they don't wait. want to show favoritism to their you know favorite cloud Podcast, which of course we are. But. Yeah, I mean, of oh, yeah, course I the understand. Google
1: the Google Cloud Podcast would not be their favorite. Why would it be? I mean, mm. there's just people telling announcements. Like, we're at least giving mm-hmm. you color commentary about how ridiculous multi-scope workspaces are. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I think they're going to stop listening we'll to us after I that mean, conversation.
1: <laughs> I'm yeah. Sorry, I'm yeah sorry about that. But you know, luckily they still publish this stuff publicly, so I can still get it even without a relationship with <laughs> Google. <laughs> All right, let's take a pause here for another sponsor, Read.
0: Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the Cloud Pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier-tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud, under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, Visit www.fogops.io slash the www.fogops.io slash the Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered.
1: Moving on to Azure, as usual. They are announcing a new data center, but not just an announcement. It's actually live. You can use it right now. What? And that data center is West US 3, which is in uh, apparently the most sustainable data center region. And then you find out it's in Arizona. which and makes then your head explodes. Yeah, it makes no sense to me. <laughs> uh, data centers, of course, are today's engine for modern businesses, providing organizations of all sizes of the cloud services and tools to innovate, collaborate, and operate securely and efficiently at scale. And Azure builds data centers around the globe to address increased customer demand for Microsoft cloud services, and they do so with sustainability in mind. Arizona was chosen, uh, but apparently not for the heat, uh, but for its abundant solar energy, highly skilled workforce, and proximity to their customers and availability of land, which Arizona does have a lot of land available, so that makes sense. Uh, Azure is offering a slew of cloud services in Arizona with staples like computing, networking, databases, but also analytics, AI, and IoT services. And to meet the Renewables Energy goal, they're partnering with Long Road Energy on their 150-megawatt sunstreams to photovoltaic solar power plant in Maricopa County, Arizona, which has been in the news a lot lately. (laughs)
0: <laughs> County, not the
1: po- not the solar power.
0: Yeah, I think that just speaks to how far solar and renewable energy technology has come. That they can cool a data center, which generates a ton of heat just by itself, in something that's you know in summers that are expected to always breach you know a hundred plus degrees, and then somehow that works out to be cost neutral over the year by using solar power. That's amazing.
1: Yeah, I, I uh, in prior life I had a you know, couple data centers in Phoenix and. You know it's just you know the amount of air gap they put between the roof and where the actual data center you know hall is, you know it's like 12 or 15 feet depending yeah. on the facility just to have enough space to suck up the heat coming in from the sun and then they don't have that in fact the the data center hall itself. Uh, so yeah, it, you know it's impressive. Um, you know there's also some other truths that you know Intel and others have figured out over the years that you know you don't really need as much air conditioning as you think you do. you just need a constant flow of air. That you can, you know, that is not overheated, and so you don't really need your data center to be at, you know, some ridiculously cold temperature. It just needs to be
0: coolish and moving, and then that's fine. Yeah. So you can drive faster in your new Tel Aviv data center, like I said. Right.
1: <laughs> true. True.
2: <laughs> yeah, I wonder if they're just like, okay, we're gonna run these things at 110 degrees, you know, and whatever power we use, you know, we'll just open up the windows and you know put a few fans there. Call it a day
0: yeah work in a past life that's exactly what they're doing Like in the data center technology the methodology has definitely changed to run a lot warmer a lot more humid uh and do a lot less conditioning on the air just because the computers are, are able to take it and it's one of those things where it's funny you can get like bugs and fuzz and mold growing in servers in certain environments and it'll still keep running just not so that's unpleasant mold. And it's not recommended, <laughs> I think.
2: I really like a scorpion in my, you know, server. is really my favorite,
1: <laughs> so. I squirrels
0: mean- are actually the biggest deterrent to center <laughs> technology. That's the thing you got to <laughs> avoid.
1: Yes, darn squirrels. Well, Oracle uh, has a couple of squirrels we could talk about this week, uh, since Azure was a little light on the new news. Uh, first up is their new ultra high performance block volume with up to three hundred thousand IOPS and twenty six hundred and eighty megabits per second of throughput per volume across all OCI commercial regions and on all interfaces. Uh, In addition to the new UHP performance, they've increased the performance of the existing higher performance option from a maximum of 35,000 IOPS to 50,000 IOPS and 480 megabits to 680 megabits throughput per volume with no increase in your price. So, hey, a price discount, I guess, for the same IO you were getting before. Uh, for example, uh, this new ultra-high block disk, though, if you had a 100,000 uh, IOP requirement for a one terabyte disk, uh, you would pay twenty-five fifty a month for the storage and $68 a month for just the performance for a total of $93.50 a month or $1,120 a year. That's a lot of money for 100,000 IOPs.
2: I really want to know what workload you have that requires a $100,000.
0: I
1: know this one. I know this one. Oh, yeah,
0: Wait. yeah. Ooh ooh, 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 ooh. Oracle. You mean Oracle? <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, was that set up
0: too easy for you guys? <laughs> of course they're going to come up with this IOs features. Just to support their own product. Yeah.
1: I mean like there's a reason why they bought Sun. It wasn't because they, you know, they wanted to be in the hard business. They needed someone to design IO that could keep Oracle running forever. <laughs> Uh, the next uh, feature from Oracle this week, I thought we'd mention, is the new uh, Oracle Java Management Service on OCI. This is an OCI native service to help manage Java runtimes and applications on premises or on any cloud. The Java Management Service, or JMS, is now generally available. Uh, and of course, Oracle is a technology leader and steward of the Java ecosystem per the press release. <laughs> JMS okay. offers a single pane of glass to manage Java deployments across the en- enterprise, answering such questions as, what are all the Java versions all in my environment? What versions of Java are running in dev and production? Which JDK distribution is each of these using? And are there any unplanned Java apps running? And are all my installed Java versions up to date and patched? Which to me just seems like a great way for Oracle to come in and audit you. Thank you so much for this this capability uh, that gives me all this insight for you to build me more accurately and more production uh, workloads. Uh, in addition to all those licensing on questions, it also provides continuous insight based on telemetry data from the JVM to analyze security, performance, compliance, and efficiency metrics. Uh, an example, they say, is normally cryptographic usage is a black box uh, in Java, which it is, uh, with expired certs or disabled algorithms only being found when something breaks or a breach has occurred, uh, which is a big problem in Java world because it's a bit black box. So that's nice. That's a good feature. Uh, and it also can automatically size my JVM. That's a big bonus, bonus as well. Uh, other than I'm giving away my soul to Oracle
0: in the process. Who let the Oracle attorneys like get a hold of the engineering roadmap? That's all I want to know. Like this is hilarious. You know, it's just an auditing tool. But I mean, that said, I imagine that the first time you get sort of written up and have to pay a big what do you call it uh, the uh, true up, uh, <laughs> you know, that's the first question. Well, how am I supposed to know across my fleets of thousands of thousands of servers, which which JDK is running in? It's too easy. And
1: if it came from another, it came from a third-party software component, or if it came from my own installation, or my own, need, there are so many ways I can burn you. Uh, but you know, the best way that customers get into OCI is through a settlement on their true-up So this is <laughs> this is how you get onto OCI. And then of course if you're on OCI. This now tells you how you don't get onto another uh, settlement in a few months. So you know, it's a great, <laughs> it's a great service. I'm so excited about this one. We're not skeptics at all. We need a like chaching yeah.
2: sound effect or something like that. Just muddy, cashier, like cash register, just yeah.
1: flowing. I don't. I, in the new soundboard, I don't have a. I don't have dollar sounds. I should get that though.
0: Yeah, yeah. Feature request. Oh
1: well, no! I, I can add any sound I want to. That's the beauty of it. So I, I can upload any audio I want, and then it'll just play it. So mm-hmm. that's, uh, that's the way to go. And then, you know, you can add sound effects all the time and, and people laughing and I can make people laugh at our jokes and lightning around now, instead of just us standing oh. here looking at each other like, ugh, that's really awkward. So,
0: well, there's no hope of actually making me funny. So I would, yeah, thank God. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, Peter's not here for the lightning round. And so it's why he sent Matt. So Matt has been tasked with reading the lightning round. Now, uh, Ryan and I know how difficult these things are, <laughs> And uh, it's you know it look we make this look easy like we we you know we've become practiced professional podcast well semi professional podcasters <laughs> who know what we're doing uh, and so you know we can we can go through our show notes and I can make my Ghibli gook show notes sound really interesting uh, and like I, I know what I'm talking about and then you know, Peter does a great job just reading these verbatim and so yeah you know, there's things that we do to Peter that we won't do to Matt because that just mean well maybe we will yeah. Uh, where we just insert funny words into his, his, his right, he's reading out loud. But, uh, you know, so Matt, we, we'll we work it, we'll we'll go with you on this journey. Uh, and, you know, maybe you, after this you'll want to start a podcast, or maybe after this you'll be like, I'm never coming on again. So we'll see how it goes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, let's start with the fact that Peter actually forgot to ask me to be on the podcast. So don't worry about that, that fact, though.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, he so he told me I can't do the podcast this week. I can get you a substitute. And I said, great, who do you want to suggest? And then you know he didn't respond to me for 6 hours and by that time I, I said well I'll go ask Matt cuz I know he's going to go to Matt first and so then he's like well it could be Matt or Sarah or Derek and I'm like okay well I already asked Matt and Matt said he could do it so it's fine <laughs> cuz I cuz I knew that I knew that Peter would follow you know his his follow through on these things is suspect at times <laughs> so
0: yeah, we just worked through that and he's not here to defend himself I mean it's not his primary
1: yeah. job but he's a CTO of a, of a consulting company and services and so he's busy all the time and so I I, yeah. I not fault him completely he, just
0: only partially no, he should prioritize the podcast. It's sure. very obvious. I
1: mean,
2: as an employee of his, my job is to make as much fun of him <laughs> as possible whenever I can. So you know, I'm gonna do that. And I doubt he actually listens to this. So <laughs> I'll probably have a job in two
0: weeks. I'm pretty sure you'll have a job even if he listens.
1: If not, we could we could have you come. You know, we could have you just come be a podcast host. We don't pay anything. Um, we do this as a labor of love. But you know, it, right. it might, you know, maybe you can convince your landlord that you know you want to get paid and. So, you know, listeners of the podcast. Perfect. I'll take that.
2: <laughs> All right. So let's see if I, get, if I can do this. Well,
1: oh, you, you know the rules of this process, right? You know how it works. Like, we say some, you say something, we respond with something hopefully witty and funny. And at the end, you have to judge us and who is better. And then we get a fake internet point that we track until the end of the year. And then someone wins or someone loses. And so far, it's been pretty
0: competitive. But I will need your, your PayPal or Venmo information after the show.
2: Perfect. I'll I'll take, uh, you know, cleaning out my sewer line for $200, please. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, All right. Azure IoT Edge integrations with Azure Monitor is now in public preview.
1: (laughs) It was well done. Well done. Well done, Reed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what anything you just said was, but, you know, it sounded beautiful. So
0: we're going to go with that from there.
2: Yeah. All right, we'll go to number <laughs> two then. Azure App Mesh introduces
0: enhanced ingress
2: traffic management mm-hmm. capabilities. So
0: now you can enhance your troubleshooting as you have no idea where this traffic's coming from. Thanks, App Mesh. Oh, so nice.
2: Or where it's going.
0: It's going into a black hole of the internet. Yeah. Duh-oh. Yeah.
2: Amazon EC2 adds a new AMI property to tag outdated AMIs. Which, Matt, you had a comment on this one
1: first. So what did you go first? I don't remember what my comment was. Uh, you commented in the pre-read that, why is this in the main show? Which I then responded to you, because it's a tag. <laughs> it's nothing more than a tag. And so I, you know, it would have been a really short main show topic of uh, Amazon EC2 has added an AMI property to flag outdated AMIs. Similar to a tag you've already, already used if you already built this capability yourself.
0: That would have been the whole story. So. They have removed the, the logic loop that I have for get all ammies and then exclude all these. so Because it does not return the tagged ammies, which is kind of cool. It's a filter, really, is what it is.
1: Anyway, mm-hmm.
0: It's a filter. I'm expecting
2: that in the future they'll add more like, you know, if it's outdated and it's not used, then to auto clean up or something along those lines. And I assume it will get integrated in with like image
1: builder. Service. Yeah, you, you know what I would really like it to do. I like it to tell you, oh, uh, this AMI is now outdated. I'm going to redirect you to the correct new AMI <laughs> that's up to date. Then I don't have to do all that lookup stuff to begin with. That's what I really like.
2: Well, in theory, they have that um, parameter store. Mm-hmm. Don't they have custom parameter source or AMI you can use?
1: Yeah. Have you tried to use that? It's that's awful. <laughs> <laughs> like no. doing, doing the Perfect. query and the parameters sort of get the latest like Amazon Linux 2 it's like ugh this is terrible code that's just undifferentiated heavy lifting Amazon please just... <laughs> I requested I, I just want to like static AMI that never changes that just gives me the latest version of a thing that's what I want which is the lazy way to do it but it would solve mm-hmm. my problem Amazon SageMaker pipelines now support callback capabilities so now
0: you can have that callback capability to tell you how much money you just spent
2: nice nice Support for SQL Server and data flows in Azure Data Factory and is Azure Syn-
1: Synapse. It's funny, you're Just listen. You're reading. my synapses <laughs> are dot are dead now. Like, I, I not only from the future, but from the reading of it too. Yeah.
2: So. As AWS Backup now supports crash consistency backups on Amazon EBS
1: volumes attached to an EC2 instance. Uh, so that thing we talked about earlier, I can now get with just my EBS volume. Why do we lead with? You know, the other story, which is about AMI creation, which no one ever does.
0: But EBS volume backups all day long. You gotta love the the AWS backup team for like, oh yeah, no, new feature. Ah, got it. <laughs> After the <laughs> EC2 announcement. Nice work. Yeah, well done.
2: Just another blog mm-hmm. post for them to publish. Azure monitor agent and data collection rules are now generally available.
1: And my new way to prank uh, Ryan is now that the data collection rules just not collect the rules at all. It's <laughs> <laughs> gonna say there are no rules. The rule is DevNull. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we collect nothing. It's secure that way. It's a compliance thing. I don't want to. Exactly. I, you know, if I don't have the data, you can't. You can't mm-hmm. sue me, and you can't get it from me because mm-hmm. I deleted it. DevNull.
2: Amazon Translate is now integrated with Amazon CloudWatch Events and Amazon EventBridge.
1: Great! I can now translate all of my alerts into the various languages of my SRE team, where I'm trying to find the lowest cost SRE people ever. <laughs> oh.
2: Introducing AWS Element Link UHD, a device that sends live UHD video to AWS.
1: And not only can I have it translated, I can also see them on video in ultra-high HD, which is awesome. I just want to know where else you're going to send it than to AWS. Uh, to I don't know, a satellite dish? What well, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, no one else has a service that I'm aware of on Google or Azure. So, yes, the only option is AWS, unless there's a company that specializes in just this that I'm unaware of.
2: AWS Certificate Manager Private Certificate Authority now supports more flexibility for CAs shared across accounts.
1: Great. I don't have to now spin up a CA for every account and spend a shit ton of money on it.
0: Oh, see, I read this completely wrong. I just thought, you know, the CA now just does yoga all the time, which is cool. Oh, yeah. It's flexible. It makes sense. Mm-hmm.
2: AWS Resource Access Manager enables granular access
1: controls with additional managed permissions. Making it even more complicated to figure out what the hell is happening in your Amazon account between Amazon Resource Access Manager and CSPs. You're welcome.
0: Manage this. You don't know what this is. You don't know how it got here. But now you have less permissions than you think you should have. I love the Resource Access Manager. where You can like deploy something really expensive into every account, and
1: then like bill all the other people for their accounts. You know, like a you know showback model for billing, and then it's like. Why is my bill so high? I, mean, I don't know. I mean that that crypto mining I'm doing has had to be spread out across all the accounts.
0: <laughs> I did like that their example was you know deploying a a, a trusted CA uh, and giving teams permission to deploy that CA but not revoke the CA. <laughs> like nah, that's not a good
1: thing. <laughs> it's the crud without the D. That's
0: all. Yeah, it's crud. Exactly. It's the crew model.
1: That's perfect. Well, I think you did a fantastic job, Matt. You know, it, it's not like I said; it's more difficult than it looks. It's just you know, you're like, ah, how hard can it can be. You just read a bunch of words off a screen, uh, but you know, Amazon naming does not help you in this. Friend <laughs> It's not your friend in this, and so mm-hmm. I think you did quite well. But uh, it's time to time for uh, Ryan to Venmo you a lot of money, mm-hmm. uh, or you know, I will just appreciate that you gave me the point. One of the two, uh, <laughs> and I'll buy you a beer at Reinvent. One of the two. <laughs> you know, you work it out. Whatever you is more valuable to you, you know, at this moment. <laughs> Well,
2: reinvent, I can get free beer at pretty much anywhere. So, That's true. you know, but actually, I was getting, I was getting the point to Peter as like, he has to read all these things <laughs> and do it live every time. Like, I have an extra respect for him right now.
0: Well, the, the, the rule of, you know, the lightning round is that there are no rules. So, yeah,
2: rules. So I'm just going to break all the rules and say Peter gets a point for actually. You know, being able to read these on the fly, and you guys didn't even mess with me. And I'm sure you guys actively mess oh, with Peter. Oh, absolutely, so, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> 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 so next time, Peter will just be confused mm-hmm. when he opens the stock and oh, sees yeah. that he has a point. We'll have no, no we'll just, idea why. No, I think why. we shouldn't
1: tell him. I think we should nope. just keep it quiet. Like hey, you Wait. have to listen to the episode to figure mm-hmm. that out. Although you did say you maybe you wanted to have a job in two weeks, so maybe we don't want him to do that. Maybe. Don't do that. <laughs> I don't know. Eh, yeah. tomato, tomato, it's fine. Someone else will else will and tell him what you said, so it's fine. It's not Peter. Someone else will yeah. tell him. <laughs> well, uh, things are coming up once again in the world of cloud. Uh, Google has not updated anything on their summits that I'm aware of. Oh, I take it back. They have. The Security Summit has been published uh, for July 20th. Uh, Google Cloud Security Summit. Uh, security professionals can learn why many of the world's leading companies trust Google Cloud infrastructure. Uh, and That will be available to you as a summit. The new Retail and Consumer Goods Summit, July 27th, uh, 2021. Uh, all available to you, as well as the ones we talked about in previous weeks are now available to you as recordings, uh, which you can find linked in this blog post that we have in the thing. Uh, Azure has given you five reasons to go attend the Azure Hybrid and Multi-Cloud Digital event. Uh, which that event will be on June twenty ninth. Uh, the five reasons, which maybe you guys have some inputs on. Uh, one is number one, be among the first to hear a major Azure Arc announcement. Which you know, I don't know about you guys, but I'm super excited to hear about what Tony Stark's got out there for the latest <laughs> and greatest Arc technology.
0: I think it's amazing,
1: <laughs> and I'm super excited about that. What do you guys think about that one? Is that does that entice you to go to the June twenty ninth event? I just want
0: to know how they're going to get all those animals paired up to put on the arc. But, okay. yeah,
1: there's that too. Uh, number two, you can learn how Azure customers are using hybrid and multi-cloud solutions, uh, which is the, basically the equivalent of, like, neener, neener, I'm doing it, and you're not. <laughs> so you got that for you. Uh, lovely companies such as Avenade, Siemens Health, the Nears, and SKF Group are all going to be sharing their use cases and stories. Uh, so that's always a great uh, reason to go. See, everyone else talk about what you're trying to do and did it better than you, which is always depressing.
2: It's a good way to make you feel bad about yourself.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's one way. Uh, Number three, see Azure Hybrid and Multi-Cloud Solutions in action. Uh, This is where you can see the Azure Arc, Azure Stack, and the Kubernetes service uh, all running on blinky lights, on blinky boxes. I assume it would be on video because I don't know how you actually see them working, like, per se, but, you know, whatever. Uh, Number four, discover how to be more productive and agile with your hybrid cloud solutions uh, to how you quickly ensure governance, compliance, and security, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I'm sure that's going to be a riveting session uh, that I would definitely want to check out. And then the last one is get answers to all your hybrid questions with the event live chat to ask any hybrid cloud questions you may have and get insights from the product experts and engineers building hybrid and multi-cloud solutions at Microsoft. Uh, All available to you again on Tuesday, June 29th from 9 to 11. Did
0: I entice you guys? Are you going to sign up? Go register right now. Well, if I've learned anything, I've learned through life that I never want to see how the sausage is made. And I know that to keep my Azure environment compliant, all I have to do is write all my rules so that we don't record any data. Very easy.
1: Uh, <laughs> next up on our list of things to pip for you guys is the State of FinOps update. The July one is coming up very soon, uh, although I have yet to post the July data uh, for when that event's going to be, but that'll be coming up very soon. If you're into the FinOps space, do check that out. And then, of course, we are still pimping AWS Reinforce in August in Houston. Sorry.
0: I'm we already just want to see who'll
1: go I this Yeah, point. I know. I'm, i Trying to uh, you know, see if I get free tickets to some people at this point, <laughs> but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, please go. Please tell me how hot hurricanes. it is, and I don't want to be yeah. there. So yeah,
0: I, you know, and then we had to decide yeah. so itself.
2: Possibility of hurricanes, nine hundred degrees. What else do I? Where else do I want? Three
0: thousand percent humidity. Yeah,
1: what could go wrong? Yeah. What could go yeah. wrong? Uh, you know, you're lucky enough to be there when it floods. That's always a win. Yeah, uh, you know, who doesn't love that? Or you know, if it's the winter, it could deep freeze. Apparently, that's a thing. Uh, but. All available to you in Houston in August if you are into that, or if you live there, you know maybe you just you <laughs> already, already used to it, so you just go anyways.
0: If you live there, I hope you weren't listening for the last like, couple
1: minutes <laughs> <laughs> or a couple of weeks where we've. we've mercil- I, I mean, even people who live in Houston mercilessly say how hot it is in August. So I they yeah. they agree with me. Like it's yeah. I don't think I'm insulting anyone, and if I am, please let me know. But these uh, are facts. You know, these, yeah, are facts. I, these are just these are just things you know about Houston and Texas in August. I
2: mean, I'm from Florida. That it's hot enough there, and I know not to go to Houston. So you know.
1: Yeah, Florida's own own level of heat as well. Uh, and then, of course, reInvent is uh, going to be November 29th through December 3rd. I paid for my registration today, so I am registered to go. I got a coupon code from my sales rep, so I assume those are out there for everybody to go get from their reps. Uh, so you can go sign up and save some money uh, as well as you know all the great details coming out. It, they are expecting a large group again because looking at the reInvent website, they have – all the same hotels, all the same event venues, and I'm like, I'm not sure you're going to break attendance records this year. Sorry,
0: it, but not sorry. That's funny because I read that the other way, which is like, maybe I don't want to go. <laughs> like, if it's going to be like half a million people, like it is, like, oh, oh, god, that again. I, I mean, but, I would find
1: it, I would find it hard yeah. to see that happening. But you know, I, I could be completely wrong on this fact. Um, I did post a uh, informal Twitter uh, vote on it. And uh, so far, 17 people have voted. I have six days left on this poll, so that's fine. You know? But uh, so far, you know, 60, 58% of the people have said, "Get me out of this house," which was one of the answers I gave them. And then uh, 23% said, Get, "Gonna sit this one out," and then 17% said, unsure. And then Corey Quinn, you know, copied me <laughs> rudely enough, and he posted it. And uh, when I last saw his survey, he was there was a lot more people saying no. Uh, you know, so I don't, I don't know. We'll see. I, I, I'm I'd be shocked to see it be as big as it was in 2019. In any way, shape, or form, like just you know, between international travel it's still probably going to be shut down for a lot of things. You're not going to have as many international travelers coming there. Uh, I just, I, I'd be shocked if it's you know forty, fifty thousand people like it's been the last couple years.
2: I mean, I wouldn't mind it be a little bit smaller, just because you know you're walking a mile between the hotels to get to that one session you really want to go to, and you get there and you realize that you're three minutes late, and they let in these standby people, and you can't actually go to that one session, which is eighty percent of the reason you yeah. went to reinvent.
1: You know, I did uh, – I, I was wondering maybe they're keeping it on all the venues to keep it socially distanced uh, and spread the people out. So you're still going to walk those three or four miles to get to a facility that, you know, hopefully will be a huge room with lots of empty seats because of social distancing. So maybe maybe that's how it's going to work out. I don't know. They, they, I think they deserve – you know, they're trying to sell tickets already to this thing. I, I do feel like they owe us more details mm-hmm. of like what is this event going to look like and what are the safety protocols that are going to be in place for this event because, you know, until – I think people are going to be apprehensive to sign up until they know.
0: Yeah. It was a very big glaring omission from the from the registration page on any details like that because that's the first thing I wanted to look at. I wonder if they had to just based on prior contracts,
2: you know, use those same hotels and all those things, you know, from prior years. Just it's what they negotiated four years ago when they up upped their contract to do it the week after Thanksgiving, and they're just gonna stick with. That. I mean, but
1: I mean, you're telling me that they they aren't willing to renegotiate anything because of pandemic? Like that's just bad. Bad contract language, and I can't imagine Amazon would be that silly, you know, to not have good contract language for that type of
0: stuff. But we'll see. I can only imagine that Amazon would be in the driving seat for that as well, right? Considering how hard the the hotel industry's been hit with COVID. So,
1: I mean, so they do have in their FAQ in the health and safety section, uh, what health measures are in place to reduce the risk of COVID 19? Uh, and it says. Uh, the health and safety of our customers, partners, and employees remains our top priority, and all attendees are required to comply with health measures in accordance with the AWS Code of Conduct. As we continue to monitor the COVID-19, we will follow guidelines from our venues and the CDC. So I mean, they, or they're, they're saying we will <laughs> update our requirements and guidances. as needed. Yeah. So they, don't, they have no idea yet. No, they have no clue. And they're going to go with whatever they have to at the moment. So, yeah. Which makes sense. That's I mean, I mean Google kind of had the same thing, right? Like they're – yeah, they haven't announced that it's going to be in person. They said, you know, in their announcement, you know, or their website that use the dates, but you know, we'll let you know what the shape and and structure of this thing looks like closer to the event. Um, but you know, that one's coming up on October 12th to 14th, so we'll see. Well, I think that is everything we can talk about. Uh, anything you guys are aware of, and we, you know, that we should pimp as a particular event that people might want to check out. I see shaking heads. No, which is not our listeners. Yeah, can't, well. so we, we appreciate that always. <laughs> And that's uh, another fantastic week here in the cloud. Good night, Ryan and Matthew. Thanks for coming, Matt. Have a good one. Anytime. Bye, Matt. everybody. And that is the week in the cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Foghorn Consulting and JumpCloud. Check out our website, The Home of the Cloud Pod, where you can join our newsletter, Slack team, and send feedback or ask questions at thecloudpod.net or tweet us with the hashtag thecloudpod.